Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And ending at verse nine, the Lord will bless his truth to all our hearts for Christ's sake. We ask it, amen. The following is a quote from a testimony by a man called Gus on a mental health website. He says this, you know that feeling when you're rocking on the back legs of your chair and suddenly for a split second, you think you're going to fall, that feeling in your chest. Imagine that split second feeling being frozen in time and lodged in your chest for hours or days and imagine with it that sense of dread sticking around too, but sometimes you don't even know why. Gus is talking about his battle with anxiety. Anxiety, according to Anxiety UK, the charity, may be a general feeling of unease with no specific cause, and it may be the main symptom of significant mental health disorders such as panic disorder, various phobias, PTSD, social anxiety disorder, and so on. The Mental Health Foundation states that in 2013, it's estimated that 8.2 million people in the United Kingdom were suffering from an anxiety-related disorder. Women in England are two times more likely than men to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and 6% of all medical diagnoses made in any week in the United Kingdom will be anxiety-related. By any standard of judgment, anxiety is a real problem in our nation for many people, and it may be a real problem for some of us sitting in this building this morning. And so what Paul says in the reading that we have just had is surely deeply significant. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Two millennia ago, in a European city, far from here, anxiety was a common reality and a problem in the local church. But why on earth is Paul writing about it in this letter? 
What has this got to do with the life of the fellowship, this collection of young believers that he is seeking to encourage and instruct? Why is he writing about this? Well, as we discovered last week, states of mind are important to Paul. And once again, in this chapter, that issue of states of mind surfaces again in a number of ways. For example, firstly, he starts those verses off that we read a moment or two ago by making a general appeal to everyone to think like he does and not like those whose mind is set on earthly things. So Paul says generally to everyone in the fellowship, remember what I said a few sentences ago, I need you to think like we think. There is a way to think as a believer. Uh, Secondly, he has two close friends in the church at Philippi who have had a falling out. They are two women, but not just any women in the fellowship. Paul says about them, these women have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Wow, these were significant leaders, significant leaders. colleagues of Paul in the work of the gospel, and they've fallen out. And so what does Paul say to them? Well, his call to these women is, quote, to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's a mindset issue. They need to deal with the way that they are thinking about things and thinking about each other. And then thirdly, at the end of that section we read, Paul listed some common moral attributes which are valued, not in the Hebrew background from which Paul comes, but from the Greek background in which most of the Philippians lived. And he says to the young Christians at Philippi, think about such things. It's another mindset issue. Look for the things that are noble and good and decent about the culture and think about those things instead of the other things. So states of mind are really important to the believer. Paul's establishing this in his letter to the Philippians, okay? And that being so, therefore, it's not so surprising that he should address a mental health issue in this context when he's talking about states of mind. In this case, the issue of anxiety. And so because it is significant enough for Paul to mention here, and because of the reality which anxiety is in our culture and in our generation, I'm going to take the rest of our time today to look at what Paul has to say about this, rather than looking in detail at all the other things that he also addresses in these nine verses, okay? But before I look at what Paul has to say, there are a couple of preliminary things we need to understand When Paul says to these believers, do not be anxious about anything, he is not giving a rebuke. Okay? True enough, the phrase Paul uses here is an imperative. It is an instruction. It is a phrase that is designed to elicit a response from the believers. But it's more properly considered to be an appeal rather than a rebuke. And it's all a matter of tone. Think about it like this, okay? How you say something can completely change the meaning of it. So, for example, um, let's say that you were old enough to have a teenage son who is in the act 
of putting a brand new pair of jeans in the washing machine, along with a number of white t-shirts and other lightly colored garments, and you look at him and you say, don't do that. It's a command. If he does that, it will have severe implications for the other items of clothing in the washing machine. Okay, so you say, don't do that. The same teenage son says to you that in spite of his good exam results, he's going to drop out of school to take up skateboarding full time. And you say to him, don't do that. That's an appeal. It's the same phrase, but it means something totally different depending on how it is said. On the one hand, it is an instruction that leads hopefully to obedience. On the other hand, it is an appeal that leads to a conversation. The same words. And in this case, in this letter, when Paul says to the Philippians that they are not to be uh, anxious about anything, he is not giving an instruction, a command. He is making an appeal. He is appealing to those in Philippi to, to adopt a different strategy with their problems. We'll come back to that in a moment or two. But what I want you to realize at this point in time is that Paul is not speaking about anxiety the way he might speak about circumcision or the way he might speak about disunity or the way he might speak about the gospel. He realizes that anxiety is serious, but it is not sin. These people, the people whom he is addressing, are vulnerable. We know that because he talks about them needing a guard for their hearts and minds. These are vulnerable people. They are not disreputable. They are not an embarrassment. That's the first thing. This is not a rebuke. The second thing is this. Believers commonly struggle with anxiety issues, even those who lead others. For example, King David, undisputed hero king of Israel, had problems with anxiety. We know that because in one of his most beautiful psalms, he sings these words in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. David has anxiety issues. Peter in the New Testament, calls on the recipients of his first letter to help, to find help in a strategy that bears all the hallmarks of Peter's personal experience. He says in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he, that is the Lord, cares for you. This is Peter talking again to people who are struggling with anxiety issues and he says something that sounds suspiciously like something he worked out through his own personal experience. And in these words, in this, this verse here, this is a play on words. The noun and the verb in that verse are the same family of words. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You could say, cast all your anxiety on him because he is anxious for you. It's a play on words. Peter knew what anxiety was and none other a person than Paul himself 
said earlier in this very letter that we're looking at in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 28, I am all the more eager to send Epaphroditus so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. David, Peter, Paul, I could go on. Here's the thing. In your anxiety, you are not alone. You are not alone in the Christian faith because these heroes of the faith obviously had similar experiences and you are not alone in this room. If your life is being adversely affected by anxiety issues, the first thing I need to say to you is Paul does not condemn that as sin. We recognize that it is commonly an issue felt by Christians and if your life is adversely affected by it, the first thing I need to say to you is Go and see your doctor. But there is some additional help here in this passage from someone who knows what it means to be anxious and for that anxiety to affect his life. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 out of the experience he describes of himself in Philippians chapter 2. And so what I want to say to you out of what Paul says here is that apart from any medical or professional help you may need to access, there are two other things to consider. The first one is this. Don't allow anxiety to kill thanksgiving. Anxiety narrows down your life to a fine point. Some specific issue or some general sense of dread, undefined and elusive, fills your horizon. And Paul directs the anxious person to the place of prayer to find perspective. He says this in verse 6. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And to be honest, if you're a person struggling with anxiety issues, your first reaction to those words might, might be, really? Like, seriously? In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving? Present your request to God. In the situations in life in which we experience significant anxiety, what is there to be thankful about? Are are these words of Paul even perverse? But here's the strange thing. A strange thing that I've discovered in ministry over the years and pastoral care of people. We often only know the value of this verse when our world is falling apart. I, I was working on the sermon last evening and got a text from a friend and, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing my sermon for tomorrow. And she said, well, what's it on? And I told her and I mentioned I'm trying, to, I'm trying to deal with this verse and work out what to say about it. And here was her response to me. Ah, she said, that meant a lot to me when I had my miscarriage and I wondered if I would ever be able to get pregnant. Sometimes it's only when your world is falling apart that this verse brings something to your heart that actually seems like blessing. I can't explain that. I recognize it makes no sense, but nonetheless, it's a reality. 
You see, the point is that the element of thanksgiving here that Paul is talking about lies in the fact that there is somewhere to go with our anxiety. That's what there is to be thankful about. You're not being asked to be thankful about the dread, about the issues it is generating, causing for you mentally and in your day-to-day living. But what we can be thankful about is that there is some place to go, that there is someone to talk to. God is as concerned about whatever this is as you are. Remember that word play in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7? He is anxious for you. Whatever it is that is disturbing and disrupting your life, God is concerned about it. There is nothing worse than talking about your worries to someone who doesn't get it themselves. I think throughout the 40 plus years of our married life, my wife worried about having virtually every disease known to man at various different points. In fact, the only one she never worried about was the one she actually had and that took her life in the end of the day. And over the years, she was so totally frustrated with me when I would say to her, you are the absolute picture of health. You cannot possibly have whatever it is you think that you might have. Look at you. You're never sick. I'm the one going to the doctor, not you. And I thought I was helping. Actually, it was totally frustrating and it usually ended badly. Because there's nothing worse than trying to tell somebody that you're bothered about something and they just don't get it. Here's the thing. The Lord knows how you feel. You're anxious. He is anxious for you. And here's the other thing. The Lord does not judge you for it. In Psalm 139, David speaks about the wonder of how personally the Lord knows him. If you know that psalm, it's one of my favorite psalms. David talks about how God knows about when he sits and stands He knows about when he thinks. He knows about what he does when he's awake and what he does when he's asleep. He says that there's no stage in his life from conception to death and no location where he can go that the Lord does not know. And the interesting thing is, in the light of that, which in itself could be a scary enough concept, okay? No place to hide. Nothing that I do, nothing even that I think. There's not a word on my tongue, the psalmist says, but you don't know it before I even speak it. Like, that is scary. But in spite of that fact, what we discover is David wants the Lord to know it all. Know my anxious thoughts, he says. Take a look into my heart and see what is there. Here is no shame. Only thanksgiving that God is interested enough to investigate the depth of his anxiety. Paul is saying, don't allow anxiety to kill thanksgiving. It is not the case that there is no one who understands. More than that, someone who not only understands, but also feels the dread you feel. It is the Lord. Thank God. And that makes a difference in and of itself. Even though just knowing that he is interested, even just knowing that he feels what you feel, even though as yet he hasn't done anything about it, is in itself potentially life-changing. 
I've told this story loads of times. I may have told it here before. But there was one occasion when I had to preach at the General Assembly and I had to preach on a really difficult day uh, after some very difficult things had happened. And uh, I was preaching for the moderator of that year who was a, a really good friend of mine. And he would come in for some flack in, in certain ways. And the subject that he had given me to preach the next day was just exactly on this issue. And I was pretty scared. To say that I was anxious was probably to understate the situation. I knew what I was going to say would not be popular. Uh, and, 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 but I knew that I had to say it. I knew I didn't have a choice. And so uh, I was there and I, the, the, the worship finished and... Uh, just as the worship finished, I, I got up to, to go up to the rostrum to read the scriptures and preach it. Just as I did, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a movement at the door over to my right-hand side. And as my eye was drawn towards it, I watched Christine walk into the room, find a seat and sit down. And that changed everything. Because sitting in the building now was somebody who knew my anxiety who understood what I felt at that moment of time and who was present there with me. It changes everything. Don't let anxiety crush thanksgiving. There is a reason to be thankful, not about the dread, not about what it is doing to you, but that there is a place and that there is a person who knows, who feels, who cares. He is anxious for you. Don't allow the anxiety to kill the thanksgiving. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Don't think that for your anxiety there is no peace. We don't always get peace. We see peace as an absence of something rather than the presence of something. So we see peace as the absence of war or hostility perhaps. Or we see peace as the absence of an annoying activity. You know, like sitting in church beside someone who is constantly fidgeting and you say, be at peace. So therefore we see peace as a passive quality. I, fi I finished writing the sermon last night in my caravan down in Castle Rock and um, while the rest of you were swimming around in the, in the rain and the beautiful weather of Belfast, I was out walking in the dry. I was swimming in the afternoon. A little bit of rain over tea time. But as I was sitting working at this last evening, looking out at the sun setting over in a showing, the most beautiful sky, the sea like a mill pond, it was just a picture of peace, what we think of as peace. Even hymn writers sometimes see it like this. John Greenleaf, Whittier, an American hymn writer, published his hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, in 1872. Um, the hymn was originally set to a tune, and the tune was called Rest, so the clue is in the title, all right? So you get any idea what this hymn is meant to be about and what it's meant to create in our minds and our hearts. And verse four of the hymn, which you may know, goes like this. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Peace is the absence of something, of strain and stress, of hostility and warfare. And there is something so appealing about that idea, isn't there? 
in a world of hurry and obligation and anxiety. And at times, we just want what we call peace and quiet, or to translate that phrase colloquially, give my head peace. But there is a peace that is divine because it is of God. And Paul talks about it twice in these verses that we read. In verse nine, he calls God the God of peace. And in verse seven, he says about those who take their anxiety to the Lord in prayer, he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying something really significant here about your anxiety. Paul says something transcends your anxiety. Something is bigger than whatever it is that you dread, and that something is the peace of God. God's peace is not a passive thing. It is the active shalom which permeates the Trinity, keeping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit whole in the midst of the horrors they confront in the world in which we live and to which the Son came as a Savior. Paul says that when by the Holy Spirit's presence this peace enters our lives, it stands guard on our heart and mind. That's a really notable picture, isn't it? This peace stands guard on your heart and on your mind. Gordon Fee in his commentary says this, in a world where fear is a much greater reality than joy, Our privilege is to live out the gospel of true shalom, wholeness in every sense of the word, and to point others to its source. We're going to come back to joy next week. That's our concluding kind of picture. We're not so much talking about it here and now, but but you see the point that is being made that in the midst of anxiety, there is something called the peace of God which is transformative in our culture and that points other people to its source. When I was a student at Queen's, I became friendly with a particular person who came from County Tyrone, way in the middle of nowhere. Um, Our friendship really got off to a hugely successful start and the very first time I met him outside the Arts Library in Queen's, we had a blinding row about politics. Those were in the days before I became a minister and had to stop talking about politics for 42 years. But in those days, I was not in any way restricted by other people's views or concerns, and we were going at it, hell for leather, and that was how we met. We became really good friends. It was one of those odd kinds of friendships. And he didn't really go to church much, although he'd been brought up Presbyterian, really wasn't a person with faith. And uh, over the next number of months, over long coffee breaks when we should really have been in the library doing some studying, we talked about loads of different things. And one day he said to me, there's one thing I don't get about you. He said, what's that? He said, how come you're so happy all the time? I can be as miserable as anybody else, believe me. Go out on a cycle ride with me and you'll find out. But... I guess what he was calling happiness wasn't really happiness at all. It was something else. It's what Paul's talking about here, what we'll say a little bit more about next week. But you see the point that, that, that the powerful presence of God 
in this peace of God that comes into a person's heart, changes that person, becomes an attractive thing, and so it gives that person an opportunity to point others to the source of what is going on in their own lives. The experience of the peace of God is like being vaccinated by a live virus. It's an active infection inside our hearts and minds. When I, I was on the team which put together a supplementary hymnal for our denomination years ago when hymn books were things that you used in church. Most of you sitting here don't even know what a hymn book is, but there used to be things called hymn books that were in church and all the, the songs on a Sunday were inside them, not on a screen up at the front. And at one stage, the General Assembly decided that really we needed some new songs to sing. And so I was... I co-led the team that put this, this new hymnal together. The reality was nobody bought it and very few people ever sang the songs in it. It was a complete disaster. Most of the versions of it published by Oxford University Press were pulped. So that's one of the big success stories of my life, okay? But when we were putting this hymnal together, we had, it was, a, it was an, a, such an amazing thing to do because you could sit down with all these songs and tunes and think, what are the ones that really have something to say to this generation? What do we need to be singing about? One of the songs we found was a song by Michael Perry. You, you may know it. It's the sort of thing you probably hear in songs of praise. Apologies to those of you for whom that's anathema, but occasionally you might hear it there. Um, and Michael Perry's song is about the peace of God. Okay? It's a really interesting song because what it actually is is a series of similes. Because he says in the song that the peace of God cannot be described and it cannot be known by, by, by men, ordinary men and women. Okay, it's not possible to put it into words. So he doesn't try to put it into words. What he does is he lists a series of experiences in life that feel like the experience of the peace of God. Listen to these similes. See if one of them speaks to your heart. Like a mighty river flowing like a flower in beauty growing far beyond all human knowing is the perfect peace of God. Like the hills serene and even, like the coursing clouds of heaven, like the heart that's been forgiven is the perfect peace of God. Like the summer breezes playing, like the tall trees softly swaying, like the lips of silent praying is the perfect peace of God. Like the morning sun ascended, like the sense of evening blended, like a friendship never ended is the perfect peace of God. Like the azure ocean swelling, like the jewel all excelling, far beyond our human telling is the perfect peace of God. There are no words to describe it. But there are a list of some experiences that feel uncannily like the experience of the powerful presence of the peace of God in your life. Paul is saying here, don't think that nothing could ever be bigger or stronger or more important than the dread beneath your anxiety because the perfect peace of God is Paul says we cannot afford to ignore anxiety. It is a state of mind and as such it needs to be addressed. We should not be ashamed to seek professional help if that's what we need. 
But as believers, there is a person to whom we can go who feels our dread and knows our anxiety. Thank God. And there is something which is bigger than whatever is the dread beneath our anxiety, the perfect peace of God who is in himself the God of peace. This is not a matter of shame or sin, but it is something, the solution to which lies beyond ourselves. And Paul's appeal about this anxiety is don't do it. Don't do it. Do something else instead. Seek the peace of God. Thank the Lord for his hearing ear and his understanding heart.